Andrew, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. How about yourself? Just enjoying life, you know. It's like 80 degrees out here. We just yeah. went on a, a steamy run. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so you know how it is. Steamy. <laughs> Reminds me of uh, the sauna trip I'm about to take. <laughs> oh, that sounds interesting. So, like, what's the scoop of that? Yeah, so um, I think it started for me about a month or two ago. Uh, I got really interested or, I mean, quite obsessed with just going to the sauna post-workouts. So every single time I'd go to the gym, just go to the sauna. Uh, it helps. I mean, I try to do a little bit of meditation in there, uh, but there's usually a lot of people in there, so it's kind of hard. But for me, it's just the time to, you know, uh, not think about too much, actually not even think about anything and sweat it out, you know. <laughs> I love the sauna and I've read a lot about, you know, all the good things it can do for you and your health. And so, yeah, I've been incorporating that. Um, I've been really big on the whole biohacking ordeal, especially with everything going on with the pandemic. Just finding anything, um, any way to optimize my body, how I think, you know, I'm so busy with a lot of things. So, yeah. And I know the physical, you got to take care of the physical if you want the mental to be on point. That's facts. I didn't realize how important physical was for mental until like the pandemic began. And then I actually started actively like going out for runs and like cardio and yeah, night and day just changed everything. Yeah. So for you, obviously you are heavily involved with a lot of things, especially involved in the deep tech industry, which is not a really easy walk in the park. Would you kind of mind defining what deep tech is? Yeah. So to me, deep tech or frontier tech or hard tech, <laughs> there's so many different names to it. Um, I think it's just... Um, a startup, usually how you classify a startup or a particular set of technology that is more forward thinking, you know, the stuff that is yet to happen. You know, I after speaking with uh, Jai Malik, uh, general partner at Countdown Capital, he told me, you know, a lot of deep tech isn't always just this moonshot mindset. And people tend to confuse those things, right? That's just really 10%. D-Tech can also be a lot of technology that is going on right now. It's just usually very scientific-based, led by people who are experts or uh, professionals, uh, usually PhDs, uh, doctors uh, in those areas. And then, like, how did you really get involved, let's say, with Deep Tech and, like, your inspiration behind wanting to be part of this movement or this change in the entrepreneurship scene? Yeah. So for me, it started back, well, let's, let's start even, it, it goes even way before I ever wanted to, you know, be an engineer or entrepreneur. Uh, when I was little, I always used to watch Star Wars and just all that sci-fi crap, you know? So <laughs> I, I, came to be uh to fall in love with the future you know and always thinking about oh will this be possible will this be possible so it was very much of a 
moonshot mindset at the beginning from the get for me. And, you know, as time went along, obviously realities started hitting me. And by the time I got to, I think it was senior year in college, I was always interested in quantum computing, even in high school. But by senior, by my senior year in college, I started actually looking into all these different, you know, per se, D-tech industries and seeing like, okay, um, how do these things actually happen? How can I be a part of this? And my first thought was to start a blog. Um, Not only so I can, I guess, demystify deep technology and, you know, normalize deep tech, uh, but, you know, for myself too, so I could learn about all these industries and kind of, you know, where, what's going on, who are the people you need to be talking to, and, you know, how are these processes come about, at least at the high level, you know? So I would say very much when I kind of threw myself into the deep tech industry was when I started writing about it in my blog, and that was uh, first published article, I think was last June, 2020. And then I started writing on Medium about August, late August. So yeah, but the idea has been there for about a year. And, you know, uh, read from reading books by Peter H.D. Amandis uh, and Ray Kerr as well, I just became so enthusiastic about the idea. I wanted to share all this knowledge with everyone else, but in a language that the normal person could understand. No, totally. I think a uh, big misconception is that you need a PhD, as you said earlier on before, or like like a higher level degree in some sort of field to get even involved in deep tech. And what I realize is like you see you have an interest. Like obviously these people who have PhDs are innovators or leaders in that space with the in really in, industry experts. So might be the best place to start. But I mean, honestly, just find your niche there and good to go. Yeah. And, you know, to go off of that, I don't believe you need to have a PhD or you need, you know, um, I guess that's just a form of establishing, you know, your ethos, um, your credibility. Uh, right now, most most of these deep tech founders, as you say, have a very high technical acumen and uh, spend a lot of time researching and working on these technologies, whether it be nanotech, quantum computing, all of the above. They have um, a, a deep history in um, learning about those things. But me, I wanted to find out where where does all this start, you know, and how could I make it make sense for myself? And if I can make it make sense for myself, I can make it make sense for other people as well. Um, you know, uh, kind of goes along with the lines of you're never really uh, an expert till you can teach someone something. That's what I thought of when I was writing my blog and whatnot. And you know, like I said, you don't have to be a PhD. That's not table stakes for deep tech. But, you know, if you have an idea, obviously it's going to be research ex- extensive and you're going to have to learn a lot. And uh, through some of my interviews on my blog, I've learned that, you know, if even if you don't know everything, then you need to be great at building your team around you, especially in the early stages to fill in those gaps that you don't fully understand. How do you they break the bridges between the scientific jargon at times and explaining it in like layman terms? Yeah. 
Yeah, so let's say you do need, well, one, just like any founder, any entrepreneur that ends up being successful, you need to, to some degree, be likable, right? Um, you need to have that energy in you that you can bring people together, right? Um, and fall in love with your vision, you know, be aligned with your mission and all that. So you need to be able to have just a normal conversation with people about, hey, this is what I want to do. And you need to be a great storyteller, especially in deep tech, uh, where a lot of ideas and products that are pitched, whether to investors or, um, you know, just any, or just told to people in general, they uh, are a lot of the times theory, especially if it's moonshot minded. You got to bring up this image for them that this could be reality, right? In the end of the day, that's, that's the dimension we live in. So you need to be able to paint the picture on how this can happen and how this can realistically happen within, you know, reasonable time frame. And I'll say reasonable being at least less than 10 years. And if not, you need to have a way that you can explain that you can still be making money or cutting deals or uh, doing something somehow in between up until you get to that MVP, right? Because the MVP is for a lot of times, especially uh, once again, for moonshots, just speaking moonshots is, you know, theory it hasn't yet, it hasn't yet to be done or at least be done well. So you need to be able to build this vision, but also have a roadmap where you're able to execute and may turn some things into reality along the way. For sure. With that being said, like what were some things you'd do differently when you go back in college and ways that you'd want to approach your degree and also understanding deep tech industries? With everything that I know, I wish I could have started from the get. Uh, well, one, I wish I would have known exactly what degree I wanted to get into. But you can't really know which degree you want to get into unless you kind of try it out. Um, I think that is more on the college, on the university side. Uh, they just need to do a better job of explaining um, how things, like, for instance, hey, this degree can get you to here, right? So, but with that being said, I wish I would have had more apl application-based work. Uh, taking classes where I'm actually going to be building things. Uh, that is one thing I continuously learn um, from all these interviews uh, above uh, time and time and again is proof of work is more important than proof of knowledge. So just taking a bunch of classes and a bunch of certificates, or I mean classes for certifications and whatnot, it, it's not as... It, it, it doesn't really tell too much, right? If you want to build robots, go build robots. If you want to work in quantum computing, obviously you can't just build quantum computers, but start reading research papers on quantum mechanics. And then, you know, uh, find some software that you can just kind of derive, uh, play around with, make algorithms um, and whatnot. So if you want to do something, you've got to start to practice that something. And you'll be amazed. Uh, at first, you feel like there's a huge barrier to entry. You need to be this super smart uh, person with a PhD and 10 years of experience so you can start doing these things. And no, for instance, for robotics, 
you know, you can go and find something, a microprocessor like Arduino or uh, Raspberry Pi and just start programming that. And that in itself is just like 30 bucks. But I didn't learn about that until my junior year. And then I didn't know how much more I could do with it until roughly like the last couple of years. So I guess to answer your question, more opportunity for more application-based work you know, you, you never really know till you actually get hands-on. That's what I'll say. Uh, to focus on proof of work rather than proof of knowledge. I think I was way too, like most college students, I was way too into the whole proof of knowledge aspect and what do I need to do to acquire this degree? What do I need to do to get this minor and major and blah, 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 and make my resume look good and so we can look good for um, people who I'd want to hire me. You know, because ultimately I end up wanting to take the entrepreneur path anyways. So <laughs> uh, a lot of all that stuff that I did to be this Google engineer or this big tech engineer or this, you know, robotic engineer, it, it just wasn't what I should have been doing. Work definitely is a huge thing not saying don't sleep through all your classes and like not study. Like obviously your time is needs spent wisely. Like going to class and studying mm -hmm. is obviously really important. Like don't sleep on that. But I mean, end of the day, like whatever you can, how you can apply your knowledge to the work you're doing. And that is the move. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, reading, writing, you know, all those basics, they're still very important. And I think there needs to be a heavier emphasis on those. Uh, you know, we start learning those when we were little. And I think people kind of get lost on that. But I think there's come to be somewhat of a renaissance these last few years on reading books and writing again. It's just, you should be doing, but if you're going to do those things, do those things for the things you want to work on, you know, emphasize and focus on what you want to work on. Don't read, don't spend a thousand hours reading or writing or learning about something that ultimately you don't even, you know, care about. Why? You know, I mean, time is finite and we don't live for thousands of years. So you want to spend every single uh, minute working on what you really care about, what you're passionate about. Um, and yeah, so, but, you know, at the same time, it's good to have that curiosity because you're not going to know exactly what you want to do, what piques, uh, piques your interests and all that stuff. So you still want to go around and, you know, try some new things. And um, I did like that aspect of college. I love that, you know, um, even the gen ed classes that a lot of people don't care about. I learned a lot of interesting things, you know, and it allowed me to empathize with a lot of different people's backgrounds. And uh, I enjoyed that very much. Um, but a lot of times I learned, oh yeah, this is just not for me, or this is just not what I want to do, um, or at least not what I want to focus on. Um, so yeah, it's good to try new things out. Um, I'm all about trying new things out, but uh, just, you know, once once you kind of get closer to something that really piques your interest, hone in on that.
So what are three things that you're actually closely following in the deep tech industry right now? One, uh, I would say quantum computing. Obviously, there's a lot of complexity uh, and complex problems that classical computers uh, can't solve. And I don't know when they'll be able to solve them, not for some time at least. And quantum computers, I believe, are going to be like a key to this vast report repository of information about the universe. And, um, and for that, you know, I'm, I'm very bullish on that entire industry. If anything, I would say quantum computers were probably like my first kind of love per se in the deep tech industry. Um, and then next, uh, space tech. I mean, who doesn't want to go to space? I think it's time that I 100% am behind Elon Musk on the whole multi-planetary species agenda. Uh, if we really want to become that advanced civilization that we always kind of think of in other movies or whatnot, going to colonize other countries, um, not countries, planets, uh, is is really important, you know, and that's where we're, I, I think we're going to find a lot of solutions, a lot of answers, and obviously there will be that many more questions that come up, but, you know, answers about the universe, or I mean, questions about the universe, we've you know, for so long, have been wanting to answer. Um, and then three, I would say it'd be a toss up between robotics and climate tech. Obviously, climate tech is kind of hard to, you know, it's very broad. There's a lot of things that can be climate tech. Almost everything is going to be climate tech, right? And so I would say, let's just uh, robotics. I'm just very uh, excited to see where. Right now, we're currently on industry 4.0, but we're next gen coming to this industry 5.0 where robots um, are going to be in heavy collaboration with humans, you know, not to supersede human beings, but to help human beings. Beyond that, um, some people say industry 6.0 will be when you can kind of build robots like how you build software applications. As in, it's kind of like, hey, you can get all these parts in and then, you know, stack them up like Legos and build your own rob robot. Kind of uh, very Star Wars pro. But uh, yeah, those three, I would say, are the technologies in deep tech I'm very uh, excited about. It's great to hear. I'm not too familiar with quantum computing. But I know energy tech and uh, robotics with industry 4.0 is huge right now, or climate tech too. Like the future of that's going to be insane. And I think the integration of climate tech in a lot of different fields, especially in a lot of the hard tech space, the mixture of IoT and climate tech will be a huge pain point that would help a lot of supply chains across the world and operations. Yeah. I mean, these next two, 10 years, there's just going to be some rapid developments uh, we're going to see, and it's going to completely shock. And I think it's going to just flip the world upside down. But also with all the good, there is the potential of bad too. And we need to be thinking about that um, more often. Uh, Cause you know, the greater these technologies could be uh, and can change the world, uh, there's also the other side, they can change the world for the worst too. 
So on our next point, historically, a lot of uh, deep tech innovation has taken during a time uh, that has been very, during wars or militaristic times, such as World War II and the Cold War, where we saw intense innovation in hard tech and research with development of nuclear arsenals, uh, stronger ships, more optimal energy sources. So with that being said, do you think that on these technologies only thrive in a time where there's militaristic competition? And then to second that, what do you currently see are the biggest opportunities that you can see deep tech help solve in the nearest future? Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of sucks to say this, but, you know, one cannot deny that extreme competition uh, brings out rapid innovation. Um, and, you know, we've seen that with the space race, uh, obviously World War II, as you said, it kind of brings out this other beast in people to <laughs> rapidly innovate, you know, and come to these solutions fast. And that's the whole ideal of capitalism, right? Competition is going to make, or I mean, whoever comes out of capitalism, out of the melting pot, is going to make for like the best founder or the best product, right? And so that's what people will see. Um, so yes, and I believe in those ideals. I believe that competition and the higher, the more competition there is, the more likely we're going to see uh, these innovations, you know, get to us quicker. And so, yeah, I'm not saying it needs to be a world war. I think there's enough uh, pressure and stress on us right now that should just want to drive people. Uh, for instance, climate tech, like I said earlier, momentous problem, right? Um, and we have very ambitious goals. And uh, I've been doing a lot of research um, for uh, Cantos lately about, you know, nuclear energy may be the only way we can hit these ambitious goals, you know, and a lot of people have all these, you know, the renewable energy options, and that's good too. I think it's going to be a combination of sorts, but we cannot deny uh, nuclear energy anymore. Um, nuclear fusion, if we can truly refine that technology and make it work at scale, would could be the one-all solution to us, you know, able to reduce all these emissions in time, being able to be a multi-planetary species. I mean, there's so many uh, pros that come out of that. And if you've seen, uh, I know there's white panic in nuclear energy, but if you've looked at um, all those incidents that happened in the past, it was because the infrastructure of, you know, the plan of the technology we're using was outdated. I, I think it's our fear of what could happen that kind of holds us back from really making it happen um, at the scale it could. Uh, um, and then let's say cybersecurity. Um, obviously, blockchain technology is going to be very helpful in that aspect. But I don't think we could ever really get to a true secure and hackable network without quantum computing there's more uh, lower level explanations on why that is the way it is, but the internet is already large, right? And then think about next 10 to 20 years, we're gonna see all those 3.5 billion people from developing countries come online. So uh, 
the internet is going to be a bit more unstable just from how it is right now. And so we need to start building for that future. And even right now, there's a lot of work that can be redone um, in terms of uh, security. Actually, there was this uh, article that I was writing about quantum computing, and I learned that um, in 2019, 63% of companies said their data was potentially compromised within the last 12 months due to hardware or uh, a silicon level security breach, right? And yeah, a lot of that is just, we're still using that old encryption methods. And even though they become a bit more robust now with classical computing, there's only so much we can do. Um, so I really believe that to really get to that, you know, unhackable network, then it would have to be quantum enhanced. And China actually is working on that right now as we speak. And they have an entire architecture. They call it their KQD, I mean, KKD, QKD, quantum key distribution. And uh, they plan on having that up and live uh, in I think the next three to four years. So yeah, that's just one aspect in telecommunications on how quantum computing can be very helpful. Sure thing. And with that being said too, I think uh, we mentioned a lot to like a lot of the ethics coming into with a lot of research and development, that's big process. And one thing I'm kind of curious about is what do you define to say as a balance between ethics and R&D when it comes to looking into creating innovative technologies? Yeah. And so this one is a difficult one. It's really, really difficult because, okay, you're speaking, let's talk about from just like the founder's perspective. It's already difficult enough to bring uh, just any product into market, you know, and find product market fit. And then on top of that, now let's go to D-Tech trying to bring in this idea, you know, that to investors is going to be a money draining idea and may not be commercial or widely adopted for, you know, however long, 10 to 20 years. It can be difficult to implement ethical thinking into R&D, right? But it's, it's absolutely necessary because then you're just building something that is just bound to have issues. And then, you know, it's, it's not a great investment of your time. And so, yeah, I, I believe, I would say that for founders, they're already, you know, bandwidth can only be stretched so uh, thin um, to find people who are conscious of these type of things and trying to do their best to make sure that ethical thinking, uh, machine ethics is submerged into the R&D from the early stages. So yeah, that is uh, pretty important, you know, and there's already a bunch of guidelines and regulatory requirements. So let's say you're building a product and then, you know, it, it works the way you want it to work, proof of concept is there. And then you go, now you start going to customers, right? Because a lot of deep tech companies are usually B2B. And you start going to customers, you know, and you go to these factories, for instance, uh, let's just say robotics, right? And you say you're using this way to power uh, the robot. And then you get to that um, factory and they're like, oh yeah, uh, that's just not going to work with us. So now you have to go back into R&D um, to figure out a solution that is going to work with your customers. Actually, uh, I recently interviewed 
an expert in robotics, uh, works in Lodi Robotics, Nicholas Nadu, and uh, yeah, he, he has some experience in, you know, building out these, he's actually written regulatory requirements in these areas, and he kind of brought to light to me, uh, or shed light to me on how rigorous these requirements can be. So you, it's just impossible to build without thinking about these things, right? We're you're opening the more momentous, the more impacting your product could be, the more risk that uh, that could happen. And so you need to think like you're opening Pandora's box here. You know, you need to think about that at the time. But it's it's hard, right? Because you're doing so much, and you know, uh, it's hard to think about all the later repercussions. And sometimes you may not even know what what's going to happen, right? Uh, you can just do your best um, to mitigate those issues. Uh, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg, when he was building Facebook at the time, and then you could probably consider uh, his application to be, uh, at least it was, it was cutting edge at the time. And, he didn't know that Facebook could end up being this entity of, you know, where the AI is just reading a bunch of people's information and, you know, all these uh, issues coming, stemming from the social dilemma. At the time, he's just building and trying to scale his company. It absolutely has to be in the thought. And I think a lot of investors would do well, and especially on their investments, to consider those things. Because if you're not considering ethical uh, thinking and you're not asking those questions, then there's a very high chance that down the road there will be issues. And then, you know, that's not great returns on your investment as well. Yeah, I think end of the day, the gray area between that's still very hard to balance because even for uh, – technology like it's it's still like you don't want to open up pandora's box even though you could say in some cases pandora's box has already been open to what has been capable of what's happening done in society with the technology that we have in place i think it's just that there's always that fear of we don't want to have this be another colossal uh f up yeah exactly uh, <laughs> it's, it's crazy man uh I mean, I greatly admire all these deep tech founders that I've been interviewing. Uh, you just need the grit, the amount of grit you need to have to be able to do that is, you know, it's it's one to none. And you, that's why I would say as an entrepreneur, you need to, uh, you need to be able to have more in you. You need to really be in love with what you're working on rather than just thinking about money, you know. Uh, Elon Musk says this perfectly uh, at a clubhouse discussion. He said uh, he was asked, uh, do you have any words, uh, any motivating words for the crowd? And Elon said, if you need uh, words of motivation, then don't try entrepreneurship. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just how it is. And the bigger the problem you're working on, the more you're going to really need something out of you to push forward. I remember that Clubhouse event. That was like the first time I downloaded the app or like one of the first two times I used it. I think that yeah. event itself got me like hooked on late night Clubhouse and then from there ruined my sleeping schedule. Yeah. 
Well, my sleeping schedule has always been ruined, but <laughs> so that's facts. <laughs> the clubhouse wasn't that bad. I sleep all over the place, but uh, yeah. Oh, and wasn't the same clubhouse where he brought up of Vlad from Robin Hood? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I actually wasn't even there. I tried to attend, and as soon as I attended, it was just I, – I think it was just like there was a struggle with the bandwidth on the audio, and they just couldn't handle any more, any more people or any more guests on it. That was, a, that was a, an eventful one. Yeah. Because so, especially right around when the Robin Hood had the Citadel uh, cases where, like, uh, they halted trading – and Elon yeah. questioned him, like, all right, Vlad, what actually happened? And it just was the ultimate, uh, what the ultimate uncomfortable interview. Like, you know how yeah. every, it, yeah, like if CNN, Fox, like uh, 60 minute interviews you can prepare for it. This went on the spot and it just was. Yeah. Well, he's a bit of an awkward guy, too, you know? I mean, uh, that was crazy on SNL. He just came out. I was like, "Yeah, first person with Asperger's," which I think still needs to be. I don't know if that was factual, but I mean, I didn't know Elon Musk had Asperger's till then. And I've read a lot of his biographies and a lot of stuff. I, I mean, it made sense, but I just didn't know. But uh, besides that, yeah, I completely understand with the whole uh, Vlad uh, thing. And I, I read, I wrote a couple articles actually on that. Um, it was actually the the beginning of what I like to call my Finmore series. <laughs> I I gotta check that out then. I, that yeah, looked, yeah, 